0: I'm going to read from Romans chapter 12. Um, If if you're following in one of the Red uh, Pew Bibles, it's on page 1139. That's Romans chapter 12, page 1139, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. Well. It is, um, it is very difficult to see beyond our own experience. So uh, when we come to a passage like this one, it's actually it's very, very hard to see what it really says, to see and to take hold of the vision of life it opens to us. To a goldfish that has lived its whole life in a little glass bowl, a description of the abundant, colorful life of the reef just wouldn't make any sense. It just would not be able to connect with what is described. This passage opens a vision of life so big, so wonderful, so beyond our normal human experience that we can look right at the words on the page and just not see it. So I'm going to begin by praying for us briefly that the Lord will help us see. Would you bow your hearts with me for a moment? Our gracious Father in heaven, Jesus once taught that there are those who, seeing, do not see, and who, hearing, do not hear, for their hearts are dull. But, he said to his disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Blessed are you, for to you it has been given to see and to hear. Father, we thank you that you have opened the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of who Jesus is and the wonder of what you have done for us in and through him. Father, would you bless us even more? Would you open the eyes and the ears of our hearts now to see and to hear what you would have us see and hear in your holy word now? Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we can do what goldfish cannot. We can imagine the reef. We can imagine, we can dream beyond our experience. We can see with the eyes of our hearts, a reality beyond what we've known. So I'm going to begin by inviting you to imagine the life the Apostle Paul says can be yours. Now, don't think that imagining... Is somehow a lesser thing than good reasoning. Good imagining takes work, and God gave you an imagination to use. And He intends you to put it to use. So we're going to do both this afternoon. We're going to start by reasoning carefully through this passage and imagining the life it describes. So I wonder if you would look with me first at the end of verse 2. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then you will be able to, it says, then you will be able to do something. Your translation might say, so that you may, or so that. In other words, with the result that, something will happen. If you see the logic there, we'll get to imagining in a moment, but for now we're in logic mode. So that, something will happen so that something will be your experience. That whatever came in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, there's all of that, so that something. So what is the something? Well, that's what we're going to imagine. The text tells us what it is, but we need to imagine the reality of that something, to dream it, to see it with the eyes of our hearts. And then we will go back, And look at what was on the other side of the so-that. What came before it. So what is the something that comes after the so-that? What is the reef that the goldfish cannot imagine? You will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Or that... By testing you may discern, perhaps your translation says, by testing you may discern that you will prove what is the will of God. Now, let's be honest, that sounds a bit of an anticlimax, doesn't it? A bit of a letdown. All of this, all this that comes before the so that, so that you will be able to test and approve the will of God. So we have to make a decision. We have to choose between two options here. We have two possible explanations as to why this could feel like a letdown. Explanation number one, it could be because the thing Paul says we will be able to do is actually not a very exciting thing. It, in fact, is quite dull. It feels uh, feels a letdown because it actually is a letdown. Paul is like a sweet old uncle, a retired archaeologist, who makes a big build-up to giving you your birthday present. He searched high and low for months, he tells you, to find the perfect gift. How he was delighted to have finally found just the perfect thing for you, tucked away in a curious little shop in the ancient city of Alexandria in Egypt. He hands over a beautifully wrapped little parcel, and you receive it gratefully, but carefully, lest you break the precious, ancient, as yet unrevealed treasure gently you remove the wrapping paper, and there it is. A brand new pencil case with two blue pens and two pencils and an eraser in it. All useful and needed, but hardly exciting. Hardly worth the build-up. It feels like quite a letdown, because the thing itself is actually a bit of a letdown after all that build-up. Explanation number two. It could be because the thing Paul says we'll be able to do is so big, so precious, so amazing that we just can't see it. All our presuppositions, all our experiences of life, all our fear, all our small-mindedness gets in the way. All we know to be impossible tells us it just cannot be so, and so we look straight at the words and don't even see what they say. We could be just like generations of art experts who knew that the original of Leonardo da Vinci's painting, his Portrait of Christ, Salvatore Mundi, had been lost, and all that remained were a couple dozen very good copies by students of his. So when another copy of it went on auction, as Lot 664 at the New Orleans Auction Gallery in 2005, critics looked at it, and they knew it wasn't the real thing. All their experience, all their learning... All commonly accepted knowledge of the subject told them, the original has been lost to history. It's just another copy. But one man saw differently. For a thousand US dollars, just a thousand dollars, Alexander Parrish bought the painting, saying, sometimes you get a good feeling about a painting. You take a bet that you know more than the auctioneer does. And he saw, it. he saw something that no one else yet could see. He saw the real thing. He saw the masterpiece. He saw what no one else could. A $1,000 bet that it was the real thing. It was sold two years ago for $450 million. The most expensive artwork ever sold. So which is it? The pencil case or the portrait. Useful. We know we must have stationery, but not all that exciting. We know we're supposed to want to know God's will. But all the world tells us, and our flesh, and our self-pleasing nature, our me, me, me orientation, tells us we should pursue our own desires. Be the masters of our own fate, the captains of our own soul. Knowing and doing the will of God is something we begrudgingly submit to because we know we ought to, good and right and dutiful, but not very exciting. Is it the pencil case? Or does knowing and doing the will of God feel like a bit of a letdown because our hearts, our dull hearts, struggle to comprehend a thing so precious? Are we like the auctioneer? Who was happy to get a whole thousand dollars for some dusty, cracked old painting. The auctioneer who just could not see the beauty, the value of the treasure in his hands. Well, listen again to Paul's words. You will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You will know the will of God in two ways which ultimately cannot be separated. First, you will know almost instinctively from within what the will of God in a situation is. What is good and pleasing and perfect in that situation? You will be so formed, so shaped by the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that all your thoughts and your desires, all your ambitions and your wants, you will know the will of God. And second, by doing the will of God, you will know by real, direct, personal experience just how good and pleasing and perfect it is. It is a will that will never fail or be found wanting. The will of God is the good and the pleasing and the perfect. There is no moment of life in which the will of God is not the good and the pleasing and the perfect in that moment. And there is no doing of the will of God in which you will not know it, experience it, as good and pleasing and perfect. Now, imagine this life. Imagine the joy of knowing from within, from a power at work within your own soul, what the will of God is in any situation. And imagine doing it. Imagine in doing what you know to be God's will, proving in your own experience to always be good and always pleasing and always perfect. What happiness. What an invitation to joy. With sufferings, no doubt, with persecutions, with sorrows, with the frustrations of living in a fallen world, but with unbroken joy in it all. So friends, I would encourage you, give time to thinking and to praying and to imagining what the day-to-day reality of this life would be like. Okay. Well, remember the logic of this passage. Remember we saw there's something going on in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2 that comes before the so-that. We started by looking at what comes after the so-that. Now let's go back and see what comes before it. So read with me. From verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to experience the reality of this life, this knowing and doing and living in the pleasure of God's will. So what comes before the so that? Well, there are two parts to it. First, therefore I urge you. And you know, whenever we read a therefore, we must ask, what is the therefore, therefore? It tells us that there's a relationship between what comes before and what comes after. Therefore, in view of God's mercy. In other words, because of God's mercy... Paul says, because all these things I've been telling you about for 11 magnificent chapters are true, because all of this is true, now therefore, this is how you ought to respond. And in fact, what Paul says here is stronger than just pointing out a logical relationship. I I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, the sense of it is not so much Paul just saying, this is true, and therefore, based on this, I urge you to do X, Y, and Z. It's more Paul saying, the mercies of God themselves, the realities of all God has done in and through His Son, Jesus, the realities of the cross and His resurrection and His ascension, the reality of the Spirit of Christ, living and dwelling in you. These things are are not merely right and true propositions. They are living realities. Jesus died and rose to save you from your sin, to bear the penalty for it, and to set you free from the enslaving power of it. All these things are true and real, and they, the mercies of God, the manifold mercies of God, Not me and myself. I am just a spokesman, an ambassador, Paul says. It is the mercies themselves that appeal to you. To do what? What do the mercies of God urge you, appeal to you to do? Well, before we see Paul's um, answer to that question, there's something else important to see. Remember the logic of the passage. Because all of this is true... Because in Christ you are saved from your sin, because of the mercies of God, because all of this is true and real, now do this, and then this will be the result. This will be your experience. You will know the will of God from the heart and delight in and experience the joy of doing it. Well, the first thing to notice is that Paul does not go straight from the mercies of God to you experiencing the reality of this life he describes. He doesn't go straight from Jesus has saved you and the Holy Spirit now lives in you to you will know and love and delight in doing the will of God. There's something in between. There's something you and I must do. It's not automatic. God requires us to do something to respond in a certain way. Present your bodies, he says. Offer your bodies, Paul says, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Give your whole life, your whole earthly life, your whole bodily life in this world to God. All your waking and your sleeping, your thinking and dreaming, your wanting, your hoping, all your ambitions for the future, all your actions today. Give it all, give the whole of your life, heart and hands, to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now I want to pause there just for a moment or two before we go further in the passage and remember where we are as a church and why we're preaching this series of sermons at all. You recall a few weeks ago we began, Jim preached for us on the gospel, we are saved, the life of Jesus given for us. The following week I preached from Romans 8 on the gospel, we are changed. It is not just that we are saved, but it is that we are set free from the enslaving power of sin. In other words, we are made disciples. Apple seeds make apple trees, you may remember. Gospel seed makes what? Disciples. Then John preached to us last week from uh, from the end of Matthew's gospel. Go and make disciples. But who is it that Jesus calls to make disciples? Just before verse 18, the passage that John preached from, Jesus in verse 16 calls his disciples to him. And the text says, he says to them, go and make disciples. The point is, it is disciples who make disciples. We make disciples by being disciples. And what does being a disciple look like? Well, most fundamentally, at its heart, it means following Jesus, becoming ever more like him. What does that mean? That means the thing that is most at the heart of who Jesus is, which is loving the Father and loving all that the Father loves. Loving God, loving God's people, and loving God's world. In other words, worshipping God as family, telling the gospel, and doing good. So what does it mean to worship God? And what implications does that have for our life together as a church? We had our elders retreat, John mentioned already, Friday night in the whole of yesterday. Helen uh, fed us on Friday night, and I tell you, no one on earth can eat as much mashed potato in one go as Keith can. More importantly, Helen made a brilliant rhubarb cake. I've never had rhubarb cake before, but it was brilliant. Yesterday, we spent the day here in the vestry just behind me. Peter led us uh, so well in thinking through the pattern of our corporate worship, of our times together here on Sundays. One of the many (coughs) really helpful things, Peter said, was that we want to make sure that in deciding how to organize our corporate worship, We want to be sure we're living out the reasons for what we do. We're living out the reasons for what we do, not just the inherited implications of those reasons. Not to be left out, Jim made uh, almost as profound a contribution later in the day, saying, let's have cake now. (laughs) Reasons and implications. Let me give you an example. We sing after the sermon. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that. There's no verse you can point to that says, after the sermon, you must sing. So why do we do that? And why do most churches do that? Why have most churches always done that? Because singing in response to God's grace ministered to us in His Word, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is fitting. It is a way of all at once praising God for the truth of what we have just heard, thanking Him for His grace to us in it, and rooting it in our hearts. In other words, there are reasons for singing after the sermon. Or to say it differently, there are reasons why we worship God in song immediately after we have worshipped God in our listening. Now as a church, we place a really high priority on corporate worship, on this gathering on a Sunday. But why? is it just an inherited tradition did some chap centuries ago think this was a good idea and whatever his reasons were we don't know but we're just we're just living out the implications of what his reasoning was sometime back in history we've just inherited the actions the tradition and well it seems a fine thing to do so we might as well carry on carry on doing it no look again with me at the passage in verse 1 paul says offer your bodies. Give your whole lives, your whole self, your whole being and life in this world to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed. Don't be like the world around you. Don't fit the world's mold. Don't let the world dress you in its clothes. Don't let the world make you look like itself. Don't let the world shape you into its image. And likeness do not conform to the pattern of this age. So, what is the pattern of this age? Well, it's all about—it's a me-centered my pattern, uh, me-centered pattern. It's all about my pleasure, my gain, my achievement, my fame, my reputation, my pride, my sense of importance. Me, me, me. I was talking with someone this week who described a former. A colleague as doing really well because he'd graduated with a good degree from a good university and now has a high-flying, high-earning hotshot job in London. But he's lost. Blind to the things of God and the glory of Christ. That's the pattern of this age. To measure success by the world's standards. To look at that life and say, that's the good life. But unless God rescues him, he's going to hell. Success, measurable in the currency of this age, apart from Christ, the pattern of this world. Or what about dating relationships? What's the pattern of this world? To start having romantic dating relationships from increasingly younger ages, but committing to marriage later and later. It's not at all unusual now for teenagers as young as 12 or 13 to have boyfriends or girlfriends but to only get married in their mid to late 30s. It's just the pattern. It's just the normal thing to do these days. But what about you? What about our teenagers here who we love? Will you conform to this pattern? Will you be just like the world around you? Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed. Be different. But be like what? What is the result of all of this? Well, it's that you would know the will of God and delight in doing it. And who perfectly exemplified that? Who perfectly knew his Father's will and loved doing it? Jesus. Jesus. So much so that he once told his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Knowing and doing his father's will was his food. It was what sustained him. It kept him going. It was his joy. In spite of all the persecution, in spite of all the opposition, in spite of all he knew he waited, that waited for him, doing his father's will was his food. So don't be like the world around you, Christian. Don't conform to its pattern. Be transformed. Be like Jesus by the renewing of your mind. Now, what is it that must not conform? Think through the logic of this passage again. It's your bodily life, your whole actual flesh and blood life, Your day-to-day rubber-meets-the-road life. Where life is touchable and real, that's where you and I are called to be like Jesus. But how? By having hearts transformed so that we instinctively know, so that the Word of God has taken root in us so so deeply that we know from the inside out what God's will in a situation is. Think about this. You You can't in every situation in life Stop and go and get out your concordance and a textbook and try figure out a theology of how to respond in this situation. You live, I would guess, and you disagree with the number, you, you live 99% of your life instinctively. So how do you shape your heart and your instincts so that they are Jesus-like? How do you transform that part of you, that place in your heart where you live instinctively, well, the pattern here is through your mind, through your mind. As you look, with your mind, as you see, with your mind, as you dwell on and soak in and rack your brains over and listen to and receive and love and cherish the Scriptures, as you see Jesus revealed in Scripture, so your mind is renewed and you become more and more like Him. There's a pathway here. Soaking in the Scriptures, seeing Jesus in the Bible, transforms your mind, your heart, that inner part of you, that core of your person from out of which you live, which means then that your life in this world is transformed. It no longer conforms to the pattern of the world, it is transformed. It is Jesus-like as we from the inside out become more like him. So what does this mean for us as a church? What are the implications for us? All of that was really to say there are reasons why Sundays are really important. Why this gathering really matters. It's not just a tradition. It's not just because we enjoy seeing each other. It's not just because we know there'll be cake afterwards. We come here first to receive from God to be transformed, to see Christ in the Scriptures, to have our hearts and minds renewed so we become more like Him, so that our lives are transformed, so that we live differently to the world. And that whole life given to God, different to the world, increasingly Christ-like in every respect, is our worship to God. Corporate worship, in other words, is for all-of-life worship. Corporate worship for all-of-life worship. And I would include in that home groups. This is why why you will often hear whoever's leading the service up here saying, if you're not yet in a home group, please come and talk to us. It's not because we're trying to get our numbers up. It's not because we think we need to add, add something to your diary. It's because that is another form or should I say another forum in which our minds are renewed, in which we look at the scriptures together and we help one another figure out what this means in real life. How to take what we are learning about Jesus and make it real in our day-to-day flesh and blood, rubber meets the road life. That's why we hold these things high. Corporate gathered worship on a Sunday. Our gathering together in smaller groups during the week. It is corporate worship for all-of-life worship. You could say it this way, the all-of-life worship of a disciple includes and is nurtured by our gathered-together structured worship. I, I think I'm going to, to leave it there. I really just wanted to, to help you see that we being a disciple means certain things. So we said before, being a disciple means becoming more and more like Jesus. What does that mean? Loving the Father and all that the Father loves. Worshipping God together as a family. Telling the gospel and doing good. What does it mean to worship God? It means all of life worship. It also means this worship, this gathered structured worship. Together for all of life worship. So I'm going to um, pray for us briefly. Uh, and invite uh, the music team to come up and lead us in a song after I've prayed. So won't you bow, bow your hearts with me for a moment as I pray. Our gracious God and Father, we give you thanks for your word, your living and powerful word that changes us. This is not just a book. These are not just words on a page. This is the word of God That by your Spirit you root in our hearts so that it will change us, make us more like Jesus. Even as we see him, even as the eyes of our hearts are open to see him, to see our risen Savior, so we become more and more like him. Father, would you help us, each one of us individually and as a church, to hold high the commitment to corporate gathered worship. To hold high the commitment to home groups to hold high our individual commitment to be seeking You in Your Word and in prayer so that we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds to become more like Jesus so that all of our lives would be worship to You, would be a response to You, a fitting and right response for the mercies You have shown us in and through Christ. Would You root the reality of of your transforming, renewing word in our minds and hearts now as we sing. Take my life, take my hands, take my voice, take my silver and gold, take my motives and my will, take my love, take all of me, Father. Consecrate my fleeting days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take myself and I will be yours for all eternity. Amen.